0: First Chronicles chapter 16, you can stay seated, <laughs> that's where we are today, if you don't want to turn back there, uh, the passage that, that David read for us, the books of uh, Samuel and Kings are written um, as more of a stark, uh, maybe political history of Israel, but Chronicles is written with a nod, a charitable nod, inspirational nod toward Israel's spiritual heritage and hope. So uh, the history is the same among those books, but the, the emphases are different. Uh, Chronicles, chapter 16. That's our text. Years ago, I heard or I read, I can't remember which, a statement that has stuck with me that says, it is impossible to stay angry with someone for whom you regularly pray. You've heard that, most of you. It's impossible to remain angry or otherwise upset with a person for whom you faithfully pray. You may not believe that, just on the surface of it, if you never heard that before. But if you put it to the test, as I'm sure some of us here have, you will find it true. Uh, If we are upset with someone... And if we really want to get past it, and that is a key thing, that is important because some people don't want to get past that, being upset with somebody. Some people don't want to get over it because they like being upset. Their anger gives them an identity, uh, something to think about, something to talk about. That is the sad state of existence. For some people. And it will chew them up over time. But some people do choose to live there. But nobody has to live there. If you want rid of anger. Held against someone else. If you will choose to pray regularly. Let's say daily. For that person. It doesn't have to be a big long time. You spend in prayer. Just pray briefly every day. That God would bless them. Keep them. Protect them. If we will do that, God will replace the anger within us toward that person with love for that person. Because that's what God does when he is genuinely invited into human relationships. He replaces anger with love, his love, which makes it impossible to remain upset with that person. So try it. On this week of Thanksgiving, particularly, if you're going to see family you don't normally see, try it. If you're sincere, if, if you genuinely want rid of your anger, you will find God will work in that way. Uh, it's a great thing to know as we enter into the holiday season. It is impossible to remain angry with a person for whom you pray. That is a truth that can be depended on. It's not in the Bible per se, but it's like Paul says, I think five times in the New Testament, that's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. It is a trustworthy saying. Uh, Here's another one on our theme for today. Here's another one. The practice of giving thanks calms chaos within us. The practice of giving thanks calms chaos Inside of us, the act, the discipline, and it does take some measure of discipline to do it. But the act of consistently expressing thanks to God calms the chaos that tends to creep into our lives and into our souls and our thoughts. Why? Why does it do it? What is it about Thanksgiving that does that? It's not magic, it's not psychology. It's not because of the power of some mantra, you know. Thanksgiving calms chaos because the expression of gratitude to God actually resets our internal attentions. It does something within us, the way we are wired. Giving thanks also realigns our attitude and it recalibrates our reality. And since we live... You and I, since we live day by day in a broken, sinful world, we all need our attitude aligned and our reality recalibrated, and we need it more often than we think, and we need it far more than just once a year in late November. This passage is taken from an account in Chronicles that provides a great example Of a faithful person, a thankful person, and an unthankful person. uh, And what those practices wound up doing in their lives, okay? Um, Here's the background that leads up to this text. Some of you know it. Some of you don't. The Ark of the Covenant. That is Israel's holy box, if you will. Meaning no disrespect. The Ark of the Covenant contained the Ten Commandments, Moses' staff, and some other things that symbolized God's presence in their midst. The Ark had, during King Saul's reign, been captured by the Philistines. But because God brought all sorts of tragedy to the Philistines while they housed it, they decided it might be a good idea to return it to Israel. So they loaded it on an ox cart, and they sent it away, and the oxen pulled it back into Israel to the house of Abinadab, and it stayed there for 20 years. During that time, King Saul died, David became king, and after he takes Jerusalem as his capital, David decides to bring the ark there to Jerusalem. But Because David and his compatriots did not do the appropriate research, the first attempt to bring the ark to Jerusalem did not go well, especially for a fellow named Uzzah. Instead of God's prescribed method of ark transport, which involved priests and poles through the rings on the side of the box, David used the Philistine method. He used an ox cart. And when the ox stumbled, scripture says, and the ark began to slide, this fellow Yuza reached out his hand to steady the ark, and God struck him dead. And apparently very violently, one translator says Uzzah more or less exploded. Get that image in your mind, okay? Let me mention, just parenthetically, with regard to that, here is a great lesson in our dealing with God. It is true... That God cares about the state of our hearts toward him. God does care about our motives quite a lot, in fact. But still, there's no excuse for our not doing due diligence. Okay? God, in his holiness, fully expects us to learn and then to do as he asks. Not only for his glory, but also for our own well-being. God expects that of us. In other words, in God's economy, there is a right and there is a wrong way to do things. And those are God's to determine, not ours. And even the very best motive in the world does not erase that. As the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 5, mature Christians are to live as children of light. How do you do that? He says we are to find out what pleases the Lord. David needed to find out how to move that box. He did not do it. And God, in his holiness, answered David's not due diligence. Anyway, as you might expect, the death of of Uzzah was quite a setback for David. This new king... And it apparently took him about three months to figure out how to rightly transport the Ark. But he did find out. And so he returned to his mission with right form this time. And he brought the Ark to Jerusalem and he set it into the tent that he'd prepared for it. Chapters 15 and 16 here of Chronicles tell that story. And it's here that we get this great contrast in attitude and perception. Between two people, between King David and his wife, Michal, the daughter of Saul. Um, Here, at the restoration of the ark to Jerusalem, we see how David was just filled with joy and praise. He was, and genuinely so. But you know, David's life had not been easy. He did not have an easy life. It was downright chaotic at times. Think back to what you know about the life of King David. He was the youngest and the smallest of his family. You who are youngest and smallest, you know how that can go, right? His own father didn't even think him worthy of mentioning to Samuel when Samuel came looking for God's choice for king. And then when he was chosen, conflict with King Saul came quickly. And severely, David lost Jonathan, his best friend. He was separated from his wife. And he wound up living a big chunk of his life on the run. He was constantly fighting, constantly looking over his shoulder, always struggling, living in caves, living off of people's good graces around him. And then when he finally does come into God's promise and becomes king, this tragedy with the ark happens. David did not live an easy life. But still, David chose to give thanks to God. You can see it in what he says and what he does here. He was able to see what chapter 15, verse 26 declares that God was clearly helping all of this to happen. He looks back over his circumstances, back over his life, back over this event. Clearly, God was helping all of this to happen. David was able to recognize that though it was hard and disappointing things come to life, in reality, as verse 30 there says, the world is firmly established. It cannot be moved. David embraced the fact that in spite of life's difficult twists and turns, just as we saw last Sunday, verse 31 there, the Lord reigns. He's the judge. The last word is his in all that there is in that fact he declares starting in verse 30 there the heavens and earth and oceans and fields and forests can all sing and celebrate and be at peace and here's the thing if all of those parts of creation can respond that way then how much more can you and i how much more can the pinnacle of God's creation. David understood that. That's why he chose to give thanks and to worship both personally. And here at the end of chapter 16, he even organized corporate worship at the national level in response to God's goodness, to God's faithfulness. He assigns a team of Levites, priests, to lead corporate worship through prayer, thanksgiving, and praise. Because even though tragic and confusing times come, David knew that God was at work in his life, and David knew God was at work in his people, and he chose to respond with gratitude. And you know, even though he made tragic mistakes, David was loved by his people. And more importantly, he was loved by God, right? His heritage, David's heritage, is one of tremendous success and faith. And apart from Jesus, David is the premier example of a godly person, a godly leader. He's described as having a heart after God's own heart. And that's what the choice of gratitude did for David. But then, right by his side david 's wife, McCall, her story ends so differently uh, now there 's no doubt that her life was hard too. Uh, it was truly chaotic and confusing at times i 'm sure as the daughter of Saul, the first king of israel she was she was given a position of great privilege, and she went on to marry the man she loved david i think I think The story of Michal and David, I think, is the only time in the Bible where a a man is described as being loved by a woman like that. She got to marry him, but she quickly found herself torn between her father and her husband. She lived in this tension, insanely jealous of King David, or of David before he was king. King Saul tried to eliminate him. Over and over and over again. Michal saved David's life by deceiving her dad. But the result was a long separation from both of them. She was separated from both her dad and her husband. And then after being reunited with David, she suffered his anger by rebuking him for what she considered unbecoming behavior for a king. You remember this. She felt he was inappropriately dressed, dancing before the Lord with all the common people as the ark entered into Jerusalem. She hated that, the sight of it, the thought of it. And she told David about it. And the last we hear of Michal are the cryptic words that says, "And, And Michal, the daughter of Saul, had no child until the day of her death. Which is a way to say, she left no lasting legacy. You see, I think McCall was a lot like her dad. Uh, She failed to notice God in her life, in both the happy and the sad happenings, because her attentions were on herself. Her attentions were always on herself. Some of the the midrash of this passage expresses it well, I I thought. To to David, McCall essentially said, my father's house was superior to yours. In his house, no one would reveal as much as an arm or a leg. (laughs) People were dignified. To which David responded, your father's house sought its own honor and forsook the honor of heaven. My approach is absolutely the reverse. I forsake my own honor in favor of the honor of heaven. Which is actually the very reason God deposed Saul and exalted David. Saul was out for Saul. Even at God's expense, Saul was out for Saul. David was out for God. Even at David's expense, you see. Saul's attentions were primarily turned toward himself. David's attentions were primarily turned toward God. So even when he didn't understand, even when David didn't understand why things were the way they were in his life, David looked to God with gratitude. He expressed that gratitude. You see it here. You see it all through the Psalms that he wrote. In the midst of the hard things he was living, the Psalms are filled with gratitude to God. And that practice not only calmed the chaos in David's life, it did reset his attentions. It pointed his eyes to what was really important, which realigned his attitude, and it wound up resetting his reality. The choice to be thankful, the choice of gratitude, it grew David up in faith. It made him a different person, it gave him a legacy. That lasts through the ages. All the way down to today. You can see David's mature heart for God. In fact. In an event that occurred years after this. Of course the, the whole saga of this, the ark. Began because. They, they started taking the ark into battle with them. Israel did. Israel saw it as something like a lucky charm. And and they subjected it to the risk of capture in order to win military victories. That's how it started. But years later, Absalom, David's own son, led a rebellion against his father as he aged. And to avoid civil war and for his own safety, David was forced to leave Jerusalem. And there was a high priest named Zadok. And he felt that David would be safer if the ark was with him. So Zadok removed it from Jerusalem and sent it with the king to accompany him. But David's reaction to the idea, that's what reveals his heart. David said to Zadok, return the ark of God to the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, then he'll bring me back. And he will show me the ark in his dwelling place. But if he says, I do not want you... Behold, here I am. Let him do to me as seems good in his eyes. You see, David felt it was his job as king to protect the ark. It wasn't the ark's job to protect him. The ark wasn't to be treated as a tool at his disposal. Reverence toward God comes first. And preserving the monarchy, (laughs) that, that takes second place. David was out for God, even at the expense of David. But the same cannot be said for McCall. Uh, her attention to, to herself, to her own place, to her own dignity, to her own rank, grew in her this critical heart, critical spirit. It grew in her loathing Instead of love for those who did not prioritize those things, even her husband, she despised him in her heart. Her attention to self precluded gratitude since she felt she had little for which to be thankful. And so in the end, attention to self over God gave her no legacy of faith in God's eyes and God's kingdom. And it gave her no legacy of family either. Uh, now, we don't know whether Michal had no children because she wound up being separated from David or because God prevented her divinely from, from conceiving. We're, we're not sure. But in either case, the consequence was Saul's line, the line of ingratitude and putting self before God. Saul's line ended. And David's line, the line of gratitude and humility before God, David's line carried on, and ironically, through Bathsheba and Solomon, their son. David's life shows us how the practice of giving thanks does calm chaos. It resets our internal attentions. It puts our attention on God. And off of ourselves. And it aligns our attitude with God's concerns and priorities. And the practice of thanksgiving recalibrates our reality. It reminds us of what is truly important and what is not. And ultimately, as David's life shows us, a grateful heart over against a critical heart gives us a legacy of faith in the God to whom we give thanks. God uses gratitude to develop us, and to mature us. Gratitude is God's milk and vegetables for the spirit, you know? It's not junk food. It's the stuff that really is good for us. Gratitude is God's vitamin for faith. And it brings order and sense to our souls. When upon life's billows you are tempest-tossed, That's the first line from the hymn, Count Your Blessings. What's it mean? We sing it all the time. Well, not all the time, but we sing it from time to time. When upon life's billows, you are tempest taught. Billows are strong winds, right? Tempests are dangerous storms. So it means when the strong winds of life toss us back and forth. Then the second line, when you're discouraged, thinking all is lost. That's easier, right? When we're feeling down and sad and even hopeless about what's happening in life, what, do, what are we to do? Count our blessings. Turn our attention to the good things God has done for us, because remember, that's what blessing is it's something that we've received from God that is good. Count your blessings, name them, remember them. That takes intentionality and effort, doesn't it? It does count your blessings, remember them one by one, and it'll surprise you all that God has done. Gratitude, the practice of giving thanks, calms the storms, the billows, the tempests, and the chaos they bring because gratitude resets our attentions and it realigns our attitudes and it recalibrates our reality. It does. It does. If life is weighing heavily on you in these days. Would you give it a try? Give it a try. You can, you can do it right now. You can do it. You can actually, on the back of the worship folder, there's a place for taking notes, you know, write down, begin writing down things God has done for you. And each one, breathe a prayer of thanksgiving to God and see if you don't immediately begin to feel lighter and more ordered and more stable. Because God will lift up the truly grateful heart. He will lift up the truly grateful heart. Lord, would you prove yourself true and your word true? I know there are some here today, there's some online, there's some that are watching this or listening to this that um, life is heavy. For them. Life is weighing on them. Their circumstances are hard, genuinely hard. And yet you call us all to yourself and you appreciate and you lighten a heart that is grateful. Help us, Lord, to choose gratitude, to engage in this discipline, to intentionally make the effort to say thank you to you for all that you have done. And help us in the blessing that we receive from even doing that. Help us to thank you for that as well. In Jesus' name, amen.